going to grab your Bible, turn to the book of James. As Pastor Tom said earlier, we are starting a new series this morning. Really, James chapter 1, verse 1, gives us most of the background that we need. When it says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church has believed almost since the very beginning without very much even disagreement that this James is the half-brother of Jesus, so the son of Mary and Joseph. And he says that he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is he would not have always considered him uh, self a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we know uh, from uh, Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7, actually James and the other siblings of Jesus were hostile to the ministry of Jesus. They kind of treated Jesus like you would a crazy old uncle that was doing things that you didn't really want to be associated with. You didn't want your name associated with that. But then something happened in between the crucifixion of Jesus, which Mary, Jesus's mother, was an eyewitness to. uh, And then three days later, the resurrection that changed James's heart. And within the first few pages of the book of Acts, James and the entire family are now followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus. And then a few pages later, people are looking to him as one of the pillars of the church of Jerusalem, which was really the flagship church in that time. Now, most scholars believe that James was either one of or the very first book written in the New Testament around A.D. 50. You could spend about 30 minutes reading through it today. That's all it would take you to finish it. And if you read it today, you would see that there's really not one theme uh, that is lifted up out of the book of James. Uh, Really, the way I read it is a New Testament version of Proverbs. Uh, It's very practical issues that are very hard to actually live out. Uh, So good news for us. uh, The book of James is going to hurt our feelings a bunch uh, in the next couple of months. It's going to put in front of us things that we're going to want to do, have tried to do before, but are actually going to struggle with. But by God's grace, he's going to do a great work, and we're going to look at verses two through four uh, this morning. I know I've told you before, but uh, Amanda and I spent about a year and a half uh, trying to adopt a baby into our home, and uh, we had uh, tried uh, three times, and all three times had failed at some point in between uh, kind of uh, the last month and the, the due date. Something would happen one particular situation. We were actually at the hospital. The baby was born, and we still didn't get to bring it home. And so after the third time that that happened to us, we called our adoption agency and said, essentially, uh, we'll call you. You don't call us. And, uh, we gave them some criteria Uh, that were really just impossible to meet, honestly. We said, uh, we want to be the last people that you call. Uh, We sure you have a list, and uh, most adoption agencies have a very, very long list. You meet people all the time that are waited a year, a year and a half, sometimes two years uh, to bring a baby into their home. But we're like, we want you to call everybody first before you call us. You just, even if somebody just emailed in for information, call them uh, before you, you call us. And then we said, uh, we want you to, uh, the, we, we want the baby to be born. Uh, we don't have it in us anymore to walk with a birth mom, love on her, care for her, provide for her as we should, and at the same time ready our home for a baby, set up the nursery, get, buy all the stuff, do all that, only for it not to work out. We just don't have it in us to do that another time. So uh, if the baby's already born and been essentially left at the hospital and you've called everybody else, then call us. 
which if you are familiar with the world of adoption, that never happens. That never happens. That would never happen in the history of the world. So a couple of months pass by, and we're trying to kind of maybe move on, but not really sure. Essentially, we wanted God to put the period to the end of the sentence. We didn't want to be the ones to do it ourselves. And, and so uh, we went on vacation and, uh, to Florida, the panhandle of Florida. There's beautiful beaches down there. Isn't it great? They got beautiful beaches. We got Galveston, which we're blessed with. And, um <laughs> You know, uh, Amanda likes to say uh, that Galveston is like our crazy relative. Like we can talk bad about them, but other people can't. You know what I mean? Like if you're from Oklahoma, you don't get to talk bad about Galveston. It doesn't work like that. It's better than what you have. We can talk bad. We're Houstonians here, so we'll talk bad about Galveston. Florida's so much better. Uh, Don't tell anybody we said that, but so much better. Beautiful water, white sand beaches. We're having an amazing time. We're there with some friends, and uh, we stop at this gourmet popsicle stop every time uh, that we leave the beach, just having a blast of a time. About halfway through the vacation, we get a phone call from the adoption agency, and they say, we've called everybody else, and now we're calling you. And there's been a baby that has been born at the hospital, and the mom has actually left the hospital. Would you be interested? And honestly, I wanted to be like, no, not interested. You know, not, not that interested. Honestly, not that interested. We're having a great vacation. But you can't say that out loud because that's probably the most selfish thing that anybody has ever said <laughs> in the history of the world. So Amanda and I, we take a walk around the little neighborhood that we're staying in. And I'm like, what, 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 should, should we do this? What do we do? What do we, it seems just totally random. We threw out the most impossible criteria ever. And it has been met. Surely this is, you know, going to work out. And so we pray, we talk, we pray, we talk, we come back, we call our agency. And they're like, I guess we should do it because we don't want to be the kind of people if there's a little baby that is bored and needs a home that we would be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be bothered with it. That just doesn't sound like I could live with myself if we did that. So we say, we'll, we'll do it. They say, okay, we'll call you back tomorrow with more details. So the next morning they call us back. We're still in Florida. And they're like, this baby needs a name. It doesn't have a name. What are you going to name it? And Amanda looks at me, what are we going to name it? I'm like, I don't know. I came on vacation. I didn't come to, I didn't bring my list of baby names. What do you want to do? She didn't know. So we picked a name, random name. And they're like, you need to call a doctor. Make an appointment at the pediatrician for the the doctor. You know, this baby's already a couple days old. So we call our pediatrician. We make an appointment for this baby by this uh, little name. I'll never forget, we're gonna leave the next day to come back to Houston and leave a little bit early from our vacation. And we go to the beach, kind of that final there at sunset, you know, kind of having a really, really fun moment. And I start writing my kids' names down in the, the, the sand. You know, I don't like to play in the water. I like to dig giant holes in the beach because I'm a grown-up. And, uh, <laughs> and so I write Jackson's name real big. You know, he's nine. And I write Annabeth's name. She's uh, seven, six. And, uh, and then I write this new baby's name right there in the sand. It's just a weird feeling. Like you go on vacation with two kids and you come home with three. You know, that's, that's, that's odd. So the next morning we wake up really, really early, get in our car and we drive, driving all the way through the panhandle of Florida, that little bit of Alabama, then through Mississippi into Louisiana. We get about an hour outside of Baton Rouge and our adoption agency calls and says the mom has changed her mind. And you know, like what do you do in that moment? What do you turn around and say to your kids? I know that we just left a couple of days early. We were doing this and now we're not doing it. What do you say to your wife? You know, you're mad, you're angry. You don't know who to be mad at. You're frustrated, you're sad, you're disappointed. And then 
You're kind of like going to get over it, and then that just happens all again, over and over and over again. And you have your own story today. You got your story of broken engagements, broken marriages. You got your story of uh, financial loss, job loss, sickness. You have your own story of uh, burials. You buried somebody way too early. You have children who have died in this room. We, we all have our stories. Homelessness, addiction, addiction of a family member. All of us could come up and share our story. And listen to this. The word of God is going to have the audacity to tell us today that our worst story should give us joy. I'll just be honest, I'm coming to it like a skeptic today. It's hardly believable, but let's just see what it says. James chapter one, verse two. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. A few things I'd love for you to write down this morning. Number one, trials happen whenever. Trials happen whenever. That's what it says in verse two. Just a simple observation. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. So you can't schedule out your affliction. You can't call ahead to make an appointment for future conflict and disappointment. When cancer calls you, you don't get to say, it's not really a good time for me. When your job calls you and says, the economy's restricting, and so we're gonna have to do some cutbacks, you don't get the option to say, that's not really gonna fit with my schedule right now. You can't schedule out affliction. It comes whenever. And we see this in a real practical way with the disciples. In the book of Luke, uh, they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his uh, closest disciples, and what happens? All of a sudden, a storm comes, starts tossing the boat all around. And that's what trials, uh, that's how they come. They come all of a sudden. They don't come scheduled out. We don't know at you know, 65 we're gonna have a heart attack, or at 53 we're gonna get some test results that uh, we're gonna have to get checked out. We can't schedule it out. It happens whenever. It happens all of a sudden. And all of a sudden and whenever is whenever you're rich, trials happen. Whenever you're poor, trials happen. Whenever you're happy, trials happen. Whenever you're sad, whenever you have a lot, whenever you have little, whenever you're single, whenever you're married, whenever you're divorced, whenever you're not divorced, whenever you uh, have kids, whenever you don't have kids, whenever you get pregnant easily, whenever you're not getting pregnant easily, it doesn't matter. They happen whenever, they happen all of a sudden. The second thing I want you to write down, simple observation, our faith is tested by our trial. Verse three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So there's a connection here to various trials, to knowing that the testing of your faith. So these trials, they test our faith. We know from verse 13, James chapter one, that God is not tempting us in these tests. It says, no one undergoing a trial should say I'm being tempted by God for God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So God is not trying to set you up. He's not trying to uh, trap you. He's testing you for the purpose of endurance. 
And you ask, well, why, why, would, why would God test us, test us like that? Well, test, um, I mean, think back to when you were in grade school. What's a test? A test is a metric of revelation. It's to reveal what you know and what you don't know. I want to show you an example of a test in Luke chapter 22. Turn there, Luke chapter 22. Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, sharing this last meal together right before he's arrested. He's been talking to all of them, and now he's specifically going to turn and talk to Simon Peter. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33, Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. So it says that Satan comes to ask permission to sift all of the disciples like wheat. That word you, it's plural. So Satan is not coming specifically for Peter. He just wants to sift and challenge and tempt all of the disciples. Now, I know that you guys are like professional farmers and you all grew up in an agricultural society and uh, culture, but uh, just in case you're not, let me help you explain what uh, sifting like wheat is. I know you know, but this is for people like me that don't know. Uh, essentially, they would take the wheat harvest and they'd put it in a big pile and then they would just beat the dog out, it, out of it for a, a long time. And after they do, uh, then all of the grain uh, is left on the ground. But you don't want all of that grain. Not all of it is actually good to eat. Some of it's called chaff, which is the unwanted part. So they would take all of that that had fallen off Uh, after the beating and they would throw it up in the air and as long as there was even a gentle breeze the chaff because it's lighter would blow away and the wheat the good stuff would actually fall back down to the ground so what satan is saying is i want permission to just beat on the disciples for a while and then i want to throw them around that's what he's asking but jesus is going to use satan's desire to sift to test Peter's statement of faith. And what's his statement of faith? Verse 33, Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So Satan wants to sift. Jesus is going to use that to test the quality of Peter's faith. Now, you may be asking yourself this question. I I know I am. Why does God need to test our faith? Doesn't he already know? I mean, can't he just look at our faith right now and determine whether it's A-level faith or C-level faith or F-level faith? I mean, we can come, come in here and be really good at church, and you could fool me, and I could fool you, but we can't fool God. I think even the most uh, skeptical among us uh, would believe that. So why does he need to test us? Because the test isn't for his knowledge, it's for our knowledge. The testing isn't so that he knows the authenticity and quality of our faith, it's so that we will. Because here's what's gonna happen to Peter. Peter is going to not deny Jesus three times just as Jesus predicted. And he is gonna run away and be totally devastated. Within just a few hours, Jesus is going to be uh, hanging from a cross. Peter's gonna be nowhere to be found. Three days later, Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. And where's Peter? Peter is still hiding out, scared. But Jesus is going to appear to him, appear to the rest of the disciples. And for 40 days, Jesus is going to rebuild Peter's faith. 
sometime in that 40 days, the disciples are gathered before Jesus and Jesus breathes on them, according to the gospel of John, the Holy Spirit. So now they're fully equipped, but he says, don't, don't go yet. I'm going to ascend, but you just wait. You just wait. You're going to know what you're waiting for when it happens. And so that's what happens. Jesus ascends up into heaven. The disciples are left. So they're waiting. So what do they do when they're waiting? They're praying. And on the holiday called Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes filled with power, uh, landing on them for their works of ministry in slivers of fire. There's large commotion. A large crowd gathers around outside this house where they've been praying. Peter steps out outside preaches the very first message of the very first church within days thousands of people have believed within a year hundreds of thousands of people have believed about uh, Jesus and Peter is really the top person in that pyramid so you think as he's the top person in that pyramid what happens if he denies that he even knows Jesus it's not just his faith that would be in jeopardy it would be the faith of all of those who have believed because of his testimony and the testimony of the other disciples. See, a test is not to let God know the quality of our faith. It's to let us know the quality of our faith. And I believe that right before God expands your kingdom influence, you will go through a season of testing. You all have kingdom influence. You have influence with your neighbors, with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers. God wants to increase that. He wants to magnify that. He wants to give you more credibility. He wants to make your reach longer. He wants your platform to be increased. He wants that when you talk, more and more people will listen. But right before he expands that, he's going to test you so that you will know the quality of your faith. I think this happened to me, and I don't think I know what happened to me in the year before we started the church. Uh, I started having all these weird, weird, super scary dreams. And I just want to preface up, up front, I'm not one of these people that, you know, everything bad happens to me is from Satan. You know, like I was sick this week. Like I'm not blaming that on Satan. I'm blaming that on my daughter who probably brought it home from the greasy kids at her school. You know, I mean... <laughs> Now, Satan wants to use anything. He wants to use the good stuff to destroy us. He wants to use the bad stuff to destroy us. So he can use anything. But I don't blame everything on Satan. You know, sometimes I have scary dreams. You have scary dreams because we watched a bunch of garbage and scary movies when we were a kid and all that stuff's floating around in there. So I'm not one of these people that every time something bad happens to me, I blame it on Satan. Most of the time I blame it on myself because it's my fault. But these dreams were different because kind of the same thing would happen every single time. And so after a while, you realize this is an organized thing. This isn't just something random. I remember the first time uh, that it happened to me. It was long before we started the church, but kind of in the window where God was really stirring it uh, in, into our hearts. Uh, we were on vacation. I know it sounds like we go on vacation a lot. We don't. It's just two <laughs> random stories. And, uh, we were so spending the night in the hotel, and, and uh, in the middle of the night, I started having this dream. I can still remember it so vividly today, even all these years later. Um, we had actually started the church in the dream. You know, we hadn't even said the church out loud to anybody, but somehow in the dream, we had already started the church. We actually started it down in the Heights. So this dream took place down in the Heights and uh, we were gonna be meeting in kind of an old and uh, kind of semi-abandoned church and we were really excited to go and breathe life back into this uh, particular neighborhood and minister to the people there. So we threw this massive block party. There's this massive block party, hot dogs for everybody, the families of the neighborhood, the kids of the neighborhood. And so a lot of people come, it was really fun. And in the middle of the dream, this young woman comes up to me and Amanda and uh, she's holding a baby and she's just telling us, thank you for so much for coming back to this neighborhood. Thank you for seeing potential in it. Thank you for reviving this church. We're so excited. We're so excited. And it's a great conversation. Meanwhile, the baby is super ugly. 
like super ugly and not like in a weird like are their eyes too far apart kind of thing but like in just like a like so ugly like I don't even really want to look at it ugly and uh you know meanwhile she's telling me a bunch of stuff that I want to hear and so it's real easy to concentrate on her telling us how awesome we are and I'm trying to not look at the baby and so we're having this conversation for a while and all of a sudden her face just changed And the best way that I can describe it is it was like she was trying to get inside of my mouth. And I woke up in that moment as scared as I have ever been. And at the same time, God had made it so obvious that his presence was in that hotel room that I was scared on one hand and totally confident in the other. But it was a season of sifting because for whatever reason, in his magnificent undeserved, unmerited grace. He was getting ready to expand my kingdom influence. We all want kingdom influence. We all want ours to grow. There will be a season of testing, not so that God knows the authenticity of our faith, but so that we will, which leads us to the next thing I want you to write down. Testing produces endurance. Testing produces endurance. Back to James chapter three, or James chapter one, verse three. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Again, a test, it's a metric revelation. And here's the good news for us today as God is testing us through our various trials. It's not the final exam. It's not the final exam. Some of us, me included, probably failed the test this week. Something bad happened to us, and it was a little trial, and we totally blew, uh, blew our lid. We went off the handle. We lost our testimony in the middle of traffic. We didn't pass the test. But the good news is it's not the final exam. There is a final exam coming. On the day of judgment, the scripture says that we are all going to stand before uh, the great white throne of judgment. That sounds terrifying, doesn't it? But we're all going to stand there, and that is the final exam. These tests that we're experiencing right now, not the final exam. The good news about the final exam is that Jesus grades on a curve, and it's a curve according to his own blood. So it's not going to be, as we stand before God's throne of judgment, about whether or not you passed the test or didn't pass the test. It's about whether you believe that Jesus passed the test on your behalf. Now, to be honest, there's going to be a lot of people, maybe even a lot of people in this room that are like, you know what, I'm not yet willing to give my all, my 100% faith. I want to hold some back for me. I want to be a good person, and that's why I come to church. But uh, as far as kind of going all the way with this thing, I don't really want to do that. I'm going to take my chances. Listen, you're going to have to take the test on your own, the final exam. And unless you've already been perfect and plan on being perfect the rest of your life, you're going to fail. But Jesus has passed the test for us. He grades on a curve that he set himself. These tests that we're experiencing now, they're just about us knowing where we're vulnerable. I think I've mentioned before, but this spring I built the kids a tree house. And, uh, and like any good home improvement project, I'm not finished yet, which is so fantastic. I'm about 95% of the way. It's always that last 5% that's super annoying. Uh, but I never built a tree house before, and so I needed some way to test whether or not I was doing a good job as I was building it because you know, we're in Texas, and so it's way bigger than it needs to be. I mean, they could practically live in it, for crying out loud. And, and so I would build one level, and then I would get in it, and then I would jump up and down on it, which is not like a super smart strategy, but I felt pretty confident about my craftsmanship 
that I could get away with it. And I would jump up and down on it because then it would let me know, oh, this part is fine. This part is a little weak. This is the place that needs to be strengthened. And I would go and strengthen it. And then, and then I would build the next part. Then I would get back up there and jump back up and down. And it would let me know, this part's fine. Now it's this part that needs to be strengthened. And that's what these tests are. That's what these various trials are. They're not for God's benefit. They're not for God to uh, suddenly know what your score is. It's so that you and I can be aware, where am I spiritually vulnerable? What are the parts of my marriage that are weak and need to be shored up? What are the parts of me being a dad that I need to get better at? Your kids ever driving you crazy one afternoon? That's not just because they're seven. That is a whenever, all of a sudden trial, an opportunity for our, te- our skills as parents in Jesus' name to be tested so we know, I, actually, I got some work that I need to do. Trials happen whenever. Our faith is tested by our trial and testing produces endurance. And then the last thing I want you to write down, the complete work of endurance produces spiritual maturity. That's what verse four says. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So it says mature and complete. Turn just a few pages to the left to Hebrews chapter five. The author of Hebrews is going to talk about maturity. Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five, maybe a familiar passage to you. This is what it says in verse 11. We have a great deal to say about this and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk and not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So the writer of Hebrews talking about spiritual maturity says when you're immature, it's like an infant only drinking milk. When you move towards maturity, just like a child, you move towards solid food. So I'm a pretty simple person. So I thought, well, I'm gonna bring some milk and I'm gonna bring some solid food. So, you know, it's Sunday morning. What's better than Sunday brunch? So I went to El Rey. I didn't actually go to El Rey. Somebody went to El Rey for me and got a brunch. Now, if you don't know what El Rey is, we're gonna have a time of prayer at the end for you. You need to get on board with El Rey if you're going to live in this city. It's like Cuban food. It's just amazing. And they have great breakfast. They have a great brunch. Uh, So, you know, we're in Houston. So I bought some breakfast tacos here and uh, we got some carne asada. It looks like some eggs, some refried beans. And if you're not into that, then I brought a big giant chocolate chip muffin because breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So you might as well start with dessert, you know, got a large sweet tea because that's what Jesus drinks in heaven. So that's a solid food. And then I was going to bring a big glass of 2% milk and pour it in because that would look awesome. But then it dawned on me, that's not the kind of milk that Hebrews chapter five is talking about. It's talking about infant's milk. So not to cross any weird lines, I brought a formula. You know, I brought a baby's formula right here because this is the comparison. It's solid food and baby's formula. 
So I don't think this is how we think of spiritual maturity. We think of spiritual maturity as something that's just going to happen to us if we keep showing up at church for a long time. Doesn't sound that appealing, does it? Doesn't sound that enticing. Just sounds like I'm going to get wrinkles. I'm going to go bald super way too early, still be incredibly devastatingly handsome, but I'm going to go bald. I'm going to gain a few extra pounds. Some of you are going to get gray hair. You're blessed by God. And you're going to grow into spiritual maturity. It's kind of all the same. But that's not the picture. The picture is from James chapter 1. This will blow your mind. That spiritual maturity is so valuable that in order to attain it, we should look at our worst stories and take joy from them because it gives us spiritual maturity. But I don't think of spiritual maturity like that. I'm a pastor. This is a natural byproduct of showing up. But spiritual maturity is solid food. And, and maybe El Rey is not your thing. Maybe brunch is not your thing. Maybe you like the brunch from Papacitos, or maybe you don't want the brunch from Papacitos. You want the lunch from Papacitos, and in a few minutes, you're going to go and get fajitas, and you're going to get the butter that they put on there. Uh, that's going to be delicious. And you want the nachos, or maybe you're not feeling Mexican food today. Uh, you're going to go Italian, and you're going to get a big bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. And uh, maybe you're, you want just fruits and vegetables, and that's fine. I think it's weird, but that's fine. You can do that too. This solid food could be whatever you want, because that's your option with solid food. The whole world is open to you, but milk, infant's milk, is just always gonna be infant's milk. It always is. And this is the choice between us today. You can say, I want health, and I want wealth, and I want comfort. That's what everybody's saying. And we can say that too. Fine, there you go the rest of your life. Infant's milk. And listen, I'm gonna be honest, it probably tastes fine for the first couple of weeks, maybe the first couple of months because my food's not good. But look, I got health, I got wealth, I got comfort. Pretty soon, drinking the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again is gonna get pretty old. And you're gonna look over at your spiritual brothers and sisters and go, man, their life is harder for them them than it is for me. They don't have wealth and they don't have health in some situations and they don't have as much comfort as I have, but they get to feast on all this solid food because you can't transition from infant's milk to the best brunch in Houston, Texas without various trials, testing of your faith that produces endurance. So it says mature and complete, lacking nothing, James chapter 1 verse 4 says. Because that's what happens when you grow into spiritual maturity. The things that you need, in quotation, need to be happy gets less and less specific, doesn't it? We see this in children. A couple of weeks ago, we took uh, the kids to Target. We were getting some things, and we happened to walk next to the toy section, which is a terrible mistake if you don't actually want to buy your kids toys. But we were over in that section, and Jackson just flips out, totally flips out, and he runs over to the shelf, and he goes, this is what I want for Christmas, because we've trained our kids not to ask for things in the moment, but just to write it down on their Christmas list. It's a great strategy, because by the time we get to Christmas, they'll have forgotten about what was on their list in September. And so, this is what I want for Christmas. This is what I want for, for Christmas, and I'm what, like, what is it? And uh, 
you know, he could have said it was a Nerf gun, but that's not what he said. This is exactly what he said. It's a Nerf in strike elite rapid strike CS 18 blaster. Like, okay. You know, he was doing what a nine-year-old does because he's an incredible salesman. He was saying like, essentially, if I don't get this Nerf, in-strike, elite, rapid-strike, CS-18 blaster, then I don't even want to bother with Christmas. That's how much I want this thing. So I wrote it down to make sure we could both forget about it together. I want to, I was going to speak it to his future right here. I'm going to prophesy over the little guy. 20 years from now, he'll be 29 years old and I will be an incredibly cool older man and uh, and he maybe is going to be married, have a beautiful wife kids, hopefully, let's just pretend that that happens for him it's going to be Christmas day in Jackson Curtis Jones's house and he's going to get a pair of white underwear and he's just going to be as happy about that Christmas day as he is on this Christmas day when he opens up his Nerf in strike rapid strike cs18 blaster you know why because as we mature what we need to be happy gets less and less specific and that's why the scripture says lacking nothing doesn't mean that if you grow into spiritual maturity you're going to get everything you want it just means you're going to want less stuff that's always a good test for where you are on your spiritual maturity how many things do you need in order to be happy are you saying man i wish i had that And if only I had that, and if only my life was like their life, then you can know that those are some indicators that there's still some growth to happen in you and I. Because spiritual maturity leads us to lack nothing. And then it says that endurance must, must do its complete work because words like maturity and complete, they're not microwavable. They're not hours and days and weeks. They're seasons, they're years and their decades. So what's the application today? What are we taking away? Take joy in your trial because of what it produces in you. Verse two, consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Take joy. On Tuesday, I went into a restaurant because I needed to get an unsweet tea. It's my daily routine. There's a long line, so I'm standing in line. and There's a woman sitting in a booth there at Her back is to me. She's facing this large TV that's hanging on the wall and she's very agitated. In fact, she's she's almost yelling, but she's yelling in a way that I can't totally hear and understand what she's saying. And as she's yelling, I mean, she's clearly mad. She's clearly frustrated, even a, a hint of disappointment in there. As she's frustrated and yelling, she's pointing at the TV. And it's just one of those 24 hour news station so it's got the dow screening across the bottom scrolling across the bottom so i don't know if she's mad at the stock exchange uh it's about the pope uh, coming to america so maybe she's had a bad experience with the pope i don't really know the story but she's mad and she's pointing at this tv now you've got good people skills and so you probably just be like hey it's none of my business and i'm gonna get my thing and get out of there but i'm super weird and so i just walk right over there by her and I just turn around and I look at her face. Just We just make eye contact because I got to see what's going on with this woman. I just, I can't go on with my day or my life if, you know, I don't know what her story is. And what I found when I walked around is that she wasn't yelling at the TV. She was actually on the phone. And she was yelling and mad and agitated and frustrated and disappointment. And 
disappointed at somebody on the phone, but not at the television. So this is what we've done today in James chapter one, verses two through four. We're just acknowledging today that your worst story, whatever it is, was awful. It is currently awful. It was bad, made you angry, disappointed, maybe even bitter. That is all true. But all we've done today is just walk around and just see the other side of the story. And the other side of the story is that it's producing something in you that is of extreme value that you can only get when, whenever, all of a sudden, trial comes to test you. And that testing is gonna produce an endurance that will produce a spiritual maturity that's way better than the best brunch in Houston. It's of infinite, eternal reward. So let's pray together. God, we take joy today as painful and as costly as it is to say that. We take joy in our various trials because we know that there's another side of the story that we've not seen or we've forgotten to remember. And it's producing something in us that's as weighty as gold. And what it's producing in us is not gonna burn away like chaff. It's heavy like wheat. It's not gonna burn away in the fire of eternal life. It's gonna come through like gold and silver and other precious metal. So we ask that you would continue to help us see the sides of the stories that we can't see. And in the moments when we can't walk around, the moments where we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and all we see is darkness, give us the faith to trust that there is another side of the story. You are working in unseen corners of those valleys. You are producing something in us that's great, that's worth the pain that we're going through. So until we see it for ourselves, we trust you. We believe in you. Don't let Satan come and shake a faith when you're worthy of a sure foundation. We ask these things in Jesus' name.